This is the word of the Lord from Job 28. Where then does wisdom come from, and where is understanding located? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, We have heard news of it with our ears. But God understands the way to wisdom, and he knows its location. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it. He established it and examined it. He said to mankind, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn from evil is understanding. Hey there, church family. Uh, Pastor Aaron here, grateful to have another opportunity to open God's Word with you. We are in the book of Job, and as I have mentioned, we have, we started slow, and now we've kind of sped up as we're getting into really the core of what the book of Job is, because the book of Job is this kind of cycle of conversations that have these themes throughout them, and so um felt like it would be best to try to tackle these things kind of theme by theme and really help you to have the tools to read and comprehend and study the book of Job for yourself. So that's what we're doing. If you want to have your Bibles open today, uh, I would encourage you to open to Job chapter 28. That's going to be kind of the core of where we land today. And uh, frankly, we're at kind of the central question, the central problem that is posed to us in the book of Job. And so uh, I would like to pray a lot and ask for God's help in teaching this. Will you join with me? God, I need your help to teach this. God, I really need your help. I I don't want to say anything that is contrary to the truth of your word. I want to say those things that would help each of us be be built up in our faith and our our love and our hope, our joy. So God, would you give uh, each and every single one of us right now soft hearts, teachable hearts to receive what it is that, that you, you want to share with us today. Help us to think more biblically. Help us to love each other more truly. Help us to love the world around us with more passion as a result of our time together. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, I was on a jog and I was listening to a podcast and this podcast, uh, the hosts were interviewing a scholar named Anthony Bradley. And uh, he is an African-American scholar, a Christian brother who has a very eclectic sort of scholarly background. And one of the things he's really passionate about and has studied and, and written books on is the idea of the criminal justice system needing reform. So they were interviewing him on this, and and if you know anything about this topic, you know that it's a really complicated subject. How do we have a law, uh, um, a system of laws that are fair and just, uh, where people who commit acts of wrongdoing are held accountable for it, and yet is not uh, destructive to life and human flourishing? It's a really complex problem, and so they were kind of asking him these questions, and and as I'm jogging, I'm listening to him, and he says this line. He goes, "You know, every every sociologist works." their salt knows that when you look at really complex problems, it's never just one thing. And any of you who know me know that at that moment while I was jogging, I shouted out like, yeah, and I had to look around because you know, the neighbors were thinking I'm some crazy person yelling on their sidewalk because the world is this really complicated place. 
And we, as human beings, are prone to look for really simple, one-thing sort of answers. And, and he went on to talk about in the criminal justice system, there's a number of different factors that contribute to the problems that we have. And, and you know, I think about, you know, just our nation, you know, why does America have so many problems? Or I think about our political climate, why, why are politics so divided? Or, or, or something, you know, over the last week or two, we've seen a lot of news about COVID cases are rising. Why are COVID cases rising? And, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in the idea, excuse me, a lot of wisdom to the idea that it's, it's, it's rarely, if ever, just one thing. That complex problems often don't have ultra-simplistic solutions. Now, I bring that up because Job's friends are just one thing type of thinkers. They are, they are simplistic answer to the max sort of people. Because the book of Job, it kind of opens from the human level with this idea of these, these people, these friends, trying to wrestle through the question of why is Job suffering? And boy, do they have the answer. Because he's a sinner. Sinful people suffer. You do bad things, you get bad things. Look at you, Job, you're suffering, therefore you must be a sinner. They are just one thing thinkers to the max. Now you can see this throughout the entire book of Job. And, and when I say the entire book of Job, it, you know, there's a little bit of narrative at the beginning. There's a little bit of narrative at the end. Obviously there's God's speech in the last few chapters uh, of Job before the narrative conclusion. But really the bulk of Job is this series of dialogues, a series of conversations between Job and the three friends. I can summarize chapter 4 through chapter 31 as such. Job, you're a sinner. No, I'm not. There it is. Now, I would encourage you to read these chapters for yourself, go slowly through them, and, and really ponder what is being said, but that's the gist of what is being argued in Job chapters 4 through 31. Now, you'll see in these chapters there are three cycles of speeches, three rounds of dialogue, if you will. Eliphaz goes first, and then Job answers him. Bildad goes second, and then Job answers him. And then Zophar goes last and Job answers him. And they do that three times. Now there's some variation, but really it's the same sort of thing. The variation is things like Eliphaz is viewed as being a little bit more mystical. If you look in Job chapter four, when he starts to talk about the truth of the universe and Job being a sinner, he, he talks about this dark, mysterious figure who came to him in the night and made the hair stand up on the back of his neck and, and he didn't know what was going on and he was very terrified. He, he, he kind of leans a little bit more spiritual or, or mystical in that way. Bildad, some have pointed out, is he's a little more traditional. In Job chapter 8, he, you know, he says things like, well, you should go ask the previous generation because we've barely been alive. We don't know anything. You need to go ask our ancestors. He wants to lean on tradition. So Eliphaz leans on personal mystical experience. Bildad leans on tradition. Zophar, some have said, well, he's a little bit more logic and reason. And you know, he says things like in Job chapter 11, you know, well, wisdom has two different sides. We need to consider different angles. So he's, he's a little bit more of that kind of a, of a guy. But the point is, they still all agree on their basic premise that Job is sinful. 
And it's interesting to watch, if you read through these chapters, you will see an increase of intensity. The, the conversations get more heated. They start to say more intense sort of things to each other throughout the three cycles. So Eliphaz, for example, in Job 5, verse 8, he says to Job, he goes, well, Job, if I were you, I would appeal to God and present my case to him. See, you know, this, if I were you sort of language, it's more gentle, right? You get to the second cycle in Job 15, verse 5, Eliphaz says, Job, your iniquity teaches you what to say, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not I. Your own lips t- uh, testify against you. He's starting to issue some more challenge. And then you get to the third cycle in Job chapter 22, verse 5. Eliphaz says, isn't your wickedness abundant and aren't your iniquities endless? A little more strident, a little more uh, heated, right? It goes from, well, if I were you, I would do this to, I can't see an end to your wickedness. By the way, uh, Zophar, the third friend, he doesn't use his third turn. He, he, you know, it's, it's Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job, three times, except for when you get to the very end, Zophar doesn't speak. And some uh, theologians and commentators have speculated it's because that Zophar, it was, it, everything was so intense, Zophar just walked away. He couldn't even handle it. <laughs> interesting, interesting thing to think about. John Walton and Tremper Longman, in their book, How to Read Job, they summarize it this way. They say, the important point is to see that the three friends represent different perspectives, though... They all agree on the conclusion that Job is suffering because he is a sinner. They may come at it from different perspectives, but they all represent the view of retribution theology. And this phrase, retribution theology, that Walton and Longman bring to us is, is what I want to really look at today. It's kind of what I want to zero in on. Because retribution theology uh, is at the heart of the book of Job. You might remember a few weeks ago in week, in week number two, in sermon number two, I said, Job goes through trials, but it is God who is on trial. And one of the elements that God is on trial for is this idea of retribution theology. So what do I mean when I say retribution theology? Here's how how I would define it most simply. Retribution theology says, if you do good things, you will get good things. If you do bad things, you will get bad things. Or if I was to flip it around and state it in the reverse order, If you're prospering and you're doing well, you're a good person. If you are suffering and and experiencing hardship, you must be a bad person. By the way, this is kind of a uniquely Israelite sort of a conversation. You know, the book of Job, none of the main characters are Israelites, and it doesn't take place in the land of Israel, but boy, this is an Israelite sort of question, because the polytheistic nations of the ancient Near East would not, would not assume that things were so cut and dry. If you were, you know, an ancient Akkadian and you served, you know, all these different myriad of gods, you, you wouldn't expect that they would make a lot of, uh, they wouldn't be very consistent. 
oh, why are we suffering? I don't know, maybe because God A is in war with God B and I just happen to get caught in the middle. Like, there's this idea of just a lot more chaos involved in the world. And yet in Israel, you know, the people of Israel come along and Abraham comes along and and there's one true God and he created all things and he's perfectly wise and perfectly just. And so, therefore, we should expect that the world should be perfectly just. It's kind of a uniquely Israelite sort of question. It's just interesting to think about that, that Job is not a particularly Israelite book, that the characters and the setting, but boy, it sure is an Israelite question. But this idea, again, for us, you know, hey, be a good person, get good things. Be a bad person, get bad things. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound familiar to you like the culture that we live in? Does that sound like, like the idea of karma? You ever hear that from people? People in your workplace, your school, your, your gym, your neighborhood, whatever, you, you start to hear this idea of like, well, just be a good person, you get good things. Or oh, if somebody does something bad, like, well, karma's going to get them. It's retribution theology. There's a version of it in the church as well. There's a version of it in the church, uh, in the Christian church, and it goes by the name of sowing and reaping. Hey, you sow good things, you're going to reap good things. You sow bad things, you're going to reap bad things. I'm going to talk about this more in just a minute because, because we need to see a few other things about the friends. The friends have this view that Job is a sinner. But there's some other things that underlie their theology. And the first is the view of God. They believe that God is perfectly just. Now, friends, do we believe that God is perfectly just? Yes, we absolutely do. But the friends, there's an interesting thing to note. If you were able to read the book of Job in the Hebrew language, I cannot do that myself. I am dependent upon other people who are much smarter than me to help me with this. But there's uh, an article that I read, and I'll link to it on the church's website, that pointed out the fact that not one time in the book of Job do the friends refer to God by his covenantal name of Yahweh. Not a single time. You know that in the, in the Bible, there's a variety of different words that are used for God. In the Hebrew, some of the most generic are, are El or Elohim, just a kind of a generic term to use for God. But when God reveals himself in a relationship of covenant to his people, he has revealed himself through the covenant name of Yahweh. If you're reading the Old Testament, you ever see Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, you know that it's the covenantal name of Yahweh that's in the Hebrew there behind your English translation of Lord. The friends never use the name of Yahweh. Job does use the name of Yahweh, and the narrator, really, the narrator of the book of Job uses Yahweh all the time, but the friends really like El Shaddai, God the Most High. So they have a view of God that is less covenantal and relation, relational and more, well, God's up there and he's powerful and he's ruling over all things and he's just. And there, there's some, it's not that what they say is explicitly wrong. It's that there's something missing and it's that nature of covenantal relationship. That's how they view God. He's big. He's powerful. He's not to be messed with. He's up there somewhere, but he's not particularly close or relational. The second thing that the friends have is a view of the world that is skewed. See, their view of the world is 
if God is just and he created the world and he sustains the world, then the world that he created and the world that he sustains must also be just. Must also be perfectly fair. There is a uh, an Israeli scholar, uh, non-Christian Israeli scholar, who in the 1960s, he wrote a, an article about the book of Job that really helps put some clarity to this thinking of the friends of Job. So I, I printed this out. I don't, maybe you won't be able to see this. I'm not sure. But imagine, you know, a, a triangle. And at the top of the triangle, you have God. You have God up here at the top of the triangle. And over here in the the lower uh, left corner, you have the world. And then over here in the lower right corner, you have Job. So you've got a triangle with God and the world and Job. And the idea is that God up at the top of the triangle, he's perfectly just. That's one of the claims made by someone in the book. And and the, the claim of the world, well, the world must be fair. If God is just, then the world must be fair. And then the other corner down here is that Job must be innocent. That's Job's claim, at least. And the idea is that if you pull in any one or two of the directions in that triangle, you move away from one of the other points. So, the friends... The friends, they're really all about the the left side of the triangle. They really believe that, that God is just, and they really believe that the world is fair. Therefore, Job cannot be innocent. Job cannot be innocent. That's their triangle. That's their tension. So they want to rewrite the triangle and say Job is not innocent. Now, Job, as we looked at last week, he also assumes that the world is a fair place, but he knows that he is innocent. Therefore, he pulls down towards the bottom of the triangle and he pulls away from the idea that God is just. And he gets himself into trouble for questioning God's justice. Job knows that he's innocent and he assumes that the world is this just and fair place. And what's so interesting about the book of Job, Maratyahu Tzavat, this, this Israeli scholar, he points out that no one thinks to question the corner of the triangle that assumes that the world is a fair place. God is just, Job is innocent, the world is a place of fairness and justice. That really is the ideology, the theology that, that, that is summarized by calling it the, the retribution principle. That is what the friends believe, and actually, to a large extent, it's what Job himself believes. These people all believe that they are living in a world where A plus B equals C. If you do good things, you will get rewarded. And friends, for us as as people of the word, as people of the scripture, this is hard because there really is a tension here, is there not? The, the, there is truth to the retribution principle. Sowing and reaping is a real thing. Psalm 37, verse 27, for example, says, Turn away from evil, do what is good, and live in the land permanently. For the Lord loves justice. He will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked are destroyed. Or Proverbs 12, verse 28 says, There is life 
in the path of righteousness. And in its path, there is no death. This is what we see in Job 4 when Eliphaz speaks. Job 4 verse 8, he says, you know, I, I've seen it that the people who, who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they reap the same thing. If you plant seeds of trouble and iniquity, you shouldn't be surprised when those things come back on you. But friends, we also know that the, the retribution, there's, there's truth to the retribution principle, but there's a limit to the retribution principle. Also from the book of Psalms, Psalm 73, verse 2. And he writes, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever seen somebody who you know is just not a very good person doing pretty awesome? You struggle with that? The writers of the scripture sure did. Or Ecclesiastes 7. I'm, I'm in the book of Ecclesiastes now in my kind of personal Bible reading plan. So Ecclesiastes 7.15 says, In my futile life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness. Someone wicked lives long in spite of his evil. You ever seen that? You've seen the retribution principle lived out. You've seen people make dumb decisions and it comes back on them. You've seen people live good lives and they, they earn a reward, but you've probably also seen the limits to the retribution principle because you've seen some pretty nasty people doing just okay. And you've seen some good people go through some hard times. As a general truth, we can say that to live God's way is the best way. It is, it is the best way to live your life, but we also know that it is not a two-way street. You cannot look at somebody who is suffering and say, oh, well, they're suffering, they must be a bad person. Oh, they're, they're rich, they're prosperous, they're healthy, they must be a good person. We cannot go backwards on that street. We can say it is the best thing to do to live your life God's way. In general, that will lead to uh, prosperity and health and well-being, but we can't go backwards and extrapolate, you know, reverse engineer the data. We can't go back and say that because someone is suffering, they must be a wicked person. And friends, how do we know this? We know this because of Jesus. We know this because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You think that Job was an innocent sufferer? Take a look at Jesus. No one has ever been more innocent and yet suffered more greatly than Jesus. The suffering of Job is eclipsed, utterly eclipsed by the suffering of Jesus. I, I, I've, I've, touched on a few times the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, because there's so much in the Old Testament that that kind of links one to another. And, and I think of Isaiah chapter 53. The prophet Isaiah is writing, he's, he's prophetically speaking of the suffering servant, the Messiah who is to come. And he says this line, he says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, hear, hear this, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It's like Isaiah is saying, when we see someone suffering this much, we, our default assumption is, well, he's being punished by God. Something he did. Why would somebody be punished by God? They must have, they must have really done something to just to torque him off. 
And yet, friends, we know that the heart of the gospel is that Jesus, though he was perfect in every way, he was without sin, he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted for us. He took our sins upon himself. God in his wisdom said, I'm going to execute my justice upon my own son so that all of those who would put their faith in him could become my sons and my daughters forever. And friends, Jesus did not stay dead. He rose from the dead on the third day to prove that the payment was given in full and that God has accepted the sacrifice. The the gospel most clearly shows us the limits to the retribution principle. James Bejan, who's a scholar, says this. He says, Job clearly believes that the innocent can suffer since he believes he is an innocent sufferer, but Job's friends do not. As far as they are concerned, God can only give people what they can reasonably be thought to deserve. God can have no deep or mysterious purposes beyond their ability to fathom. And as a result, according to friends of Job, the innocent simply cannot suffer. Which, of course, means that God's Messiah cannot suffer. The theology of Job's friends, therefore, leaves little room for the cross. So, as noble as it may sound, its rigidity is disastrous. It is the magnification of law over gospel and is the almost polar opposite of true biblical theology. So, I've done a little deconstructing here, kind of breaking down the overly simplistic worldview of Job's three friends. What does the book of Job want us to know about God and how he governs the world? If, if, if God doesn't govern the world, if we need to rethink the triangle, maybe we need to you know, put a different point down there by the, the, the third point of the triangle of, of, of justice, what is it that God wants us to know from the pages of the book of Job about how he governs the universe? And the clue for us is found in Job chapter 28. You know, Hebrew poetry often has this pattern to it. It's kind of a symmetrical pattern. They, the fancy technical word for it is a chiasm. You know, you go A and then B and then C and then D and then you go backwards. C, B, A. And, and multiple scholars over the years have pointed out that the chiastic center of the book of Job can be found in Job chapter 28. And in Job chapter 28, it's this interesting sort of intrusion. You know, it's in the middle of Job's speech, kind of before his final claim of innocence. And Job is kind of in the throes of saying all sorts of, ooh, not such good stuff. He's saying, you know, harsh things against God. He's, he's pouring out, you know, his bitter complaints. And there's this pause kind of in the book of Job chapter 28 where a lot of people actually think maybe this is a narrator's intrusion. Maybe this is from the lips of Job. Maybe he's uh, you know overcome by the Holy Spirit and he starts prophesying. Maybe it's a narrator's intrusion. I'm not entirely sure. But it starts out with this talk about like, man, gold is sure hard to find, isn't it? You know, miners go under the under the earth and they dig around and they've got all these complex things to try to find gold and to try to find silver and to try to find jewelry and it's this really 
really complicated search. And at the end of the day, you know, maybe they find it, maybe they don't. It's this interesting poetic discussion. And in verse 12, chapter 28, verse 12, says this, but where can wisdom be found? And where is understanding located? No one can know its value since it cannot be found in the land of the living. The ocean depth saith not in me, while the sea declares I don't have it. Gold can't be exchanged for it, and silver cannot be weighed out for its price. Wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or lapis lazuli. Gold and glass do not compare with it, and articles of fine gold cannot be exchanged for it. Coral and quartz are not worth mentioning. The price of wisdom is beyond pearls, and topaz from Cush cannot be uh, compared for it, and it cannot be valued in pure gold. So this whole big thing about gold and topaz and, 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 and crystal and all these things, what the, the, the author of the book of Job is saying here in ch- chapter 28 is wisdom is the thing that we need more than anything else. Verse 20, where then does wisdom come from? And where is understanding located? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, we've heard news of it with our ears, but God understands the way to wisdom and he knows its location for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When God fixed the weight of the wind and distributed the water by measure, when, when he established a limit for the rain and a path for the lightning, he considered wisdom and evaluated it and established it and examined it. He said to mankind, hear this friends, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn from evil is understanding. You know, some of this language here sounds very similar to when God shows up in chapter 38 and makes his speech to Job, this language of when he distributed the water, when he established a limit for the rain. What, what, we're, what we're being um, hinted at here is this idea of, do you even understand how complicated the universe is? Do you know how you know, ecology and, and all of the environment works together? Do you understand the phases of the moon? Do you understand, like, could you really truly wrap your brain around all of these, these issues, these, these multifaceted complex issues? Like the, the book of Job chapter 28 and then God's speech later, which we'll address in a few weeks, is just, it's the death sentence to that overly simplistic, it's just one thing sort of thinking. Wisdom takes all sorts of things into consideration. Wisdom is multifaceted. Wisdom is complicated. You know, I think of something simple like, you know, I teach my kids at a young age something as simple as do not hit. And that's true. That's a very baseline sort of a thing. It's just, it's simple, don't hit people. But what if they walk in and I happen to be watching a boxing match on the TV? 
okay, can they understand at what age can they understand that okay, well these two grown adults, you know, they signed a document that said they want they want to do this. They both enjoy doing this for whatever reason and whoever wins is going to make, you know, lots and lots of money or maybe even more so, hey, don't ever hit, never hit, don't do it. And then a, a robber tries to break into the home like, "Well, daddy, you said not to hit." Well, like, "I'm I'm going to defend you and I'm going to defend our our home." Like there's there's other principles at play besides just the one single principle, do not hit. Or, you know, I think of in our world, you know, I read an article recently, you know, talking about how electric cars are better for the environment from the perspective of CO2 emissions, but they might actually be worse for the environment because the process of making the batteries is actually more harmful for the environment. Ah, wisdom, it's complex, right? Like, I'll put it this way, before God, I deserve to die. According to the strict laws of God's justice, if I was to read all of the words of the scripture, I deserve to die for my sin today. But what about my wife and what about my children? And so for God to enact a a strict, simplistic justice upon me would then plunge my children into suffering of having to grow up without a father, without uh, financial provision or the, the other things that I provide. Like the world is just so much more complicated. And so the book of Job invites us to, to, to lean into this idea that God does not only rule the world by his justice, but by his wisdom. And friends, again, this idea of God's wisdom leads us once again right back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God's justice says, if it was just pure justice, we all must be punished. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. No, no, no. We haven't just wandered. We've all rebelled against God. It's not just that we've, you know, made some mistakes or are imperfect. No, we've actively, willfully chosen that which is opposed to God's perfect will. And therefore we deserve his justice. And yet God's love enters into the picture and he says that he delights in showing mercy and grace. So how do you reconcile God's justice with his mercy and his grace? It's God's wisdom of saying, I'm going to send my son to enact justice upon him to give mercy and to give grace to all who will believe. 1 Corinthians 1.30, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I, for one, am extremely grateful that God has not dealt with me according to the strictest principles of justice, but that he has given me grace and mercy out of the abundance of his love and his wisdom. And friends, the gospel of Jesus ultimately trumps the retribution principle since in Christ, not only do I get mercy, I get, I get forgiveness for the punishment that I do deserve, but I get grace. I get a gift that I could never have earned and I could never have deserved. The gospel is the end of the retribution principle. And so friends, I just want to invite you to, to, to wrestle with this. 
This is one of those things that we need to wrestle with in the context of conversation and relationship, not in the context of a, of a sermon or a teaching. This is something we need to talk about in community and in relationship because there's a few things. Number one, we live in a culture... The United States of America, for those of you who are listening to me here as Americans, I know this is out on the internet, so maybe other people can hear this, but we live with the cultural assumption of the retribution principle. We live, whether Christian or not, Christians might call it sowing and reaping, non-Christians, the people you're around in your workplaces or schools or neighborhoods call it karma. There's just this assumption of be a good person, do good things, you dummy, don't, don't be mean to people. Do the right things and everything will go well for you. Just listen to the authorities. Just listen to the government. Just work hard. Just do good. And so friends, we have an opportunity here as people of the kingdom of God. We need to really evaluate. Do we want to be retribution principle people or gospel people? And this is particularly important because of our current cultural moment. Right now, as I speak this, in, in July of 2020, there are a lot of people in our culture crying out for justice. And friends, we as Christians, we recognize that, that God is just. He is perfectly just. And we, of all people, should be the most pro-justice people that you could find. We want people to be treated fairly. We want people to be treated equitably. And at the same time, we need to recognize two things. Number one, the, the, the justice of God is often not so simple. You can turn on a lot of news programs. You can listen to a lot of podcasts where they're offering, well, it's just this one thing sort of solutions. And friends, the wisdom of God with the justice of God, sometimes the answers just aren't quite so simple. So we need to be people who are patient, who are slow to speak, who are quick to listen, who are thoughtful. We need to be the kind of people as Christians who will listen to multiple sides of an argument to really try to, to, try to hear all these different perspectives to make sure that we're not just hastily rushing to judgment because of our own, our own personality type or our own life experiences. Like it's, it's just not quite that simple. The world is looking for an overly simplistic view of justice, and yet God wants to come in with his wise justice. And then, and then the second thing I'll say on that is this. The world wants justice, but friends, our aim goes beyond justice. Our aim goes to love. And this could be the beginning of yet a whole nother sermon right now in this moment, but I'll just simply say this. Justice is a baseline. Love is the aim. Justice. God could have treated us according to the strictest principles of justice, and yet what God did was He came in love. In love before He laid the world's foundations. In love, God sent His Son. For God so loved the world, He sent His one and only Son. Friends, God's love toward us helps us understand that, that justice is just this starting point, and, and God's purposes of love are, man, they're 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 darn near unfathomable. If we tried to really sit and think about it, we couldn't fully understand it. And so friends, we have an opportunity to trust in God's wisdom. The world might not actually be all that fair of a place, but we have a God 
who not only is perfectly just, is perfectly loving, and we have a gospel of grace that goes beyond the retribution principle so that we don't get what we do deserve and we do get what we don't deserve. How good is that? Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of the gospel, people who understand that there's more to this world than just uh, just sowing and reaping or just karma or just do good and get good or do bad and get bad. Lord, help us to recognize that you, Lord Jesus, received our sins upon yourself so that we might receive your goodness and righteousness. Help us to never lose sight of that. Help us to always trust your wisdom, even when we don't fully understand it, God. Help us to trust that you are governing over things by your wise rule, and we can trust you because you are full of love. We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.